Let's open the Word of God, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And I'd like us to turn to verse 31. Gospel of John 13, verse 31. Howard Hendricks, was, who was one of my favorite teachers at Dallas Seminary, used to say, Almost all modern Christians extol the concept of Christ-like servanthood, and yet most of us almost seem offended when anyone at our homes, our workplace, our school, or our church asks us to invest significant time and effort into actually being one, being a servant. But today we're going to look at a passage where we're going to see what Jesus teaches about servanthood. And I sent you an email this week and, and said, how do you react when people treat you like a servant? Uh, let's see what Jesus says about that today as we look at uh, the upper room discourse that the night before the crucifixion, Zach, Jesus teaches this content. This is the last thing he wanted kind of resonating in these uh, 11 believing people's hearts. Judas leaves the room before the good stuff happens. So we'll see that this morning. And we're going to call this washing and wisdom. We're going through the life of Christ A through Z. We're getting toward the end of the alphabet, aren't we? And getting toward the uh, the end. We've got one Savior, four Gospels, 26 major events. And this is just one way to walk through those. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that setting is so important. I think people forget this. And I'll show you what I think is maybe one of the most unbelievable verses in the Bible uh, later today. Uh, I've never had trouble believing in the... Uh, biblical miracles, because, you know, if the first verse, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, if that, if that happened, then anything's possible. But I'm going to show you a verse that really blows my categories. I still, after thinking about it for decades, can barely believe it. It's just too good to be true. But let's uh, prepare our hearts to feed and worship by taking in the Word of God this morning. Uh, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's Word, and let's, as we do as a custom, let's pray for our uh, military and our peace officers and our firefighters and Sydney uh, Powers, if you would lead us in prayer in that direction. Okay. Well, I know it wasn't easy for Maxine to come to church today, but it was really hard for Jackie. She had to drive from Kansas City just to be here. So we thank you for that. Yeah, here's our abstract thought warmer upper. It came from my wife. I'm not sure I've ever used my phone before in church like this, but just this once. Uh, we grew up in southeast Texas, just uh, in Texas, in the promised land, just a little bit east of the state line with Louisiana. But in south uh, Louisiana and southeast Texas are a lot of Cajun folks, and you have these interesting French spellings for names. So uh, with that in mind, she sent me this joke, and I'm going to share it with you. Uh, two Cajun pastors, Pastor Boudreau, who was the part-time minister at the local Cajun Baptist Church, and Pastor Thibodeau, who was the minister of the Church of the Nazarene right across that street, uh, were posting a very important sign on the road on which their churches were both located. And uh, part of that sign said, the end is near. Now, I realize Cajuns don't necessarily spell all that great. Turn yourself round right now before it bees too late. So they put this sign out there, and they weren't out there very long after the sign was posted when this uh, guy drove by in a nice convertible, and he stopped and looked at the sign looked at them and said, you guys are nothing but dangerous religious fanatics. 
And then the guy in the car sped off, went around the curve, and a few seconds later, the pastors heard brakes screeching and a big splashing noise. And at that point, Pastor Boudreaux turns to Pastor Thibodeau and says, do you think we should repaint that sign so that it just says, bridge out ahead? <laughs> you got to read things in context. Things don't mean what they say. They mean what they mean by what they say, the way they say them, say them and how they say them. In John 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus is not telling you how to get saved or how you can know you were saved but so you, how you can fellowship with him and have a joy that transcends happiness and have a consistently fruitful Christian life. A lot of people use these kind of passages as uh, measuring sticks to, so you can look at your virtues and make sure you really believed. I think that's just the opposite of what we've got. We are saved by looking at Jesus in faith. We have our primary source of assurance by looking at the one who saved us and then secondarily, yeah, the fact that uh, we have some fruit is nice and encouraging, and we should do that. But this isn't telling you how to get saved. It's telling saved people how to fellowship with Jesus when he's no longer physically walking around with them. Uh, after the the incident we'll actually look at today, the, in, at the very beginning of this, Judas leaves the room. And for most, for four and a half of the five chapters, Jesus is talking to believers. Judas is gone. And he's basically saying, look, I'm about to get arrested. I'm not going to physically walk around with you anymore. Here's how you can fellowship with me, even though I'm not going to physically be here. And it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, or you're walking with some assistance, or if you're a track star. If you're a believer, you can't see him. He's real. But there is one key concept, Tim, you need to know so you can fellowship with the one you've trusted for salvation. We're going to see that today in this very important passage uh, this is, of course, a screenshot from the Passion of the Christ, which uh, is actually technically wrong because they weren't sitting at chairs at the Last Supper. They were reclining, as I'm sure most of you know that. But, yeah, we're winding down in our survey of the life of Christ, working through the letters of the alphabet with all the 26 events lined up with a letter, and we come to letter W, Washing and Wisdom. But we're going to emphasize here as we finish that these are real places Fill those real events, real people. So let's put this on a map. And you guys, most of you guys know your biblical geography enough to know that this strip of land that had been promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called Canaan, Israel, or sometimes people call it Palestine, uh, in New Testament time was broken into three areas. The southern area was called Judea. That's where Jerusalem and Bethlehem, among other places, were. Uh, the northern region, and a lot of Jews lived there. The northern region was called Judea. A lot of Jewish people lived there. Jesus based his ministry in, in Gal Galilee, I should say. I said it wrong. Galilee's here. Judea's here. What's in the middle? Samaria. The Jews shouldn't have hated those people, and those people shouldn't have hated them, the Jews, but they, they pretty much hated each other. And the Jews in Judea would go around Samaria, and people in Galilee go around Samaria because that was half Jew, half Gentile. They did have a messed up religion. But what did Jesus do? He walked right through it, right, in his ministry. So he didn't recognize a lot of the prejudices that plague even well-intended religious folks. But that's the geography now. Let's walk through the life of Christ A through Z. 
A has two aspects. Angels announce first the supernormal pregnancy to Zacharias and Elizabeth, who are too old to have children, but lo and behold, they get pregnant with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the Tiller of the Hun, Alexander the Great, uh, three guys with the same middle name, you know. Uh, so A happens in Jerusalem, the uh, angelic announcement about John the Baptist coming into the world, and then a two is angelic announcement first to Mary, who's engaged but has had no sexual relations. Uh, she's going to have a supernatural pregnancy. Uh, she's told, go south and visit your relative Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, just so you can be encouraged about this, that this is really going to happen. And Elizabeth, Mary does that, so she goes out of town for three months or so, comes back visibly pregnant, and Joseph assumes the worst. I thought everybody in the Bible was so gullible, they just believe miracles happening all the time. Joseph saw the obvious. He just assumed something had happened. He's going to try to end the engagement quietly, and then an angel announces to him, don't do that. This is the virgin-conceived Savior, and uh, that's A, angels announced. That, that's a relatively good start, isn't it? B, birth in Bethlehem. C, carpentry career. Jesus worked with his hands for at least 18 years from apprenticeship to full technon uh, status working with wood and stone before he started his ministry. He starts his ministry near Jerusalem at D when he's baptized by John the Baptist, the Messiah, identifying with the Messiah's announcer. Uh, when he's when he's um, baptized by John the Baptist, uh, we see the dove, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. So D stands for dove descends at the Duncan, and then immediately after. That event where God the Father declares Jesus to be perfectly righteous, this is my beloved son, right? Force of God the Father, what does Jesus do? He goes out and does hand-to-hand, face-to-face, mano-a-mano, spiritual combat with Lucifer and demonstrates his perfect righteousness. He's got to be perfectly righteous to be the sin-bearer for all of us, otherwise he's paying for his own sins, not ours, right? So that's very important. F is first followers. After he's baptized, Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist is baptizing, and John starts funneling his followers to Jesus, says, that's the Lamb of God, that's the guy I baptized, right? And so we see John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel as the first followers of Jesus, and they're all just visiting John the Baptist on their vacation. They live in Galilee, the northern region where Jesus ministers and grew up as a tecton, a carpenter, so G is great guests at the wedding. Jesus and his five followers and others go to a wedding reception. They run out of refreshments. Jesus turns water into Kool-Aid for Baptist, water into wine for Biblicists. H is harsh house cleaning. As the minute, this is the first Passover during the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus, after 2,000 years of Old Testament prophecy to the Jewish uh, people, finds institutional Judaism totally corrupt. Puts him out of business for the afternoon. Harsh house cleaning. I, while he's in Jerusalem, Jesus talks to the leading teacher of the day, Nicodemus, Jewish teacher, and says, being good in your best is not good enough to go to heaven. You're a very righteous Jewish guy. You know the Old Testament by heart, probably in Hebrew, right? Uh, but it's not good enough. You've got to be born again. You've got to get a new spiritual birth by believing in me, by trusting in me for salvation. And watch this. Where's Jay located? We talked about Galilee in the north, Judea to the south. Jacob's well is located where? In Galilee, Judea. It's in Samaria, where the hated half-breeds lived, where the Jewish 
Religious leaders were saying people had spiritual cooties. You can't walk through there. It'll mess you up. Jesus goes right through the middle of it and he interacts not with Nicodemus, a rich, religious, uh, acclaimed, righteous person. He talks to the woman at the well. We don't even know her name. You'll see her in heaven though. She's been married and divorced five times probably because of her infidelity. Now she's living with her boyfriend and, you know, she's based on the standards of the day, based on a lot of things, a very immoral person. And Jesus interacts with her, and she's amazed that a man would even talk, a Jewish man would even recognize her existence as a, as a thing, as a person. And he offers her eternal life if he would just, if she would just accept him as the Savior. She's, he's offering her eternal life as a gift, just like he offered the very religious Jewish guy, Nicodemus. I interview in Jerusalem, Nicodemus, J. Jive at Jacob's well. She tries to change the subject uh, for the Samaritan woman. K, Jesus goes back to his hometown, Tim. He's been a carpenter for 18 years. He's begun his public ministry. They're hearing about it. He comes back. He preaches at the synagogue. They hand him the scroll. It's got a marker on it. It's set at Isaiah 61, which says, Today the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he puts it down and he says, today that scripture has just been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one Isaiah 61 said was the Messiah who's preaching the gospel to the poor. And the city was very unhappy. How dare you say you're the Messiah? You're just the God that kind of fixes our houses and does repairs and other things. Lays some fine uh, mosaic floors probably. And they try to kill him. And in fact, uh, in May, we'll go to the mountaintop just outside of the city where they tried to throw him off the cliff. That's K, kin, kick out. So Jesus doesn't base his ministry where he worked for so long. He bases it in a small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee, which is one reason, Jackie, he keeps bumping into fishermen. You know, if you're in Nazareth, you're going to bump into a lot of fishermen. These are not fishing today. You know, me and Dustin and Mike were to go fishing on a Saturday. It's just fun. We're fishing for fun. If you catch fish, it's nice. It's a bonus, you know. These are commercial fishermen, Peter, James, and John. So location lateraled. You'd expect Jesus to base his ministry in his old hometown, but because they kick him out, location lateraled. And then he begins his great Galilean ministry of messages, mainly the Sermon on the Mount, as convicting pre-evangelism for those who need to trust him, as discipleship truth for those who do, and then neutralizes nature. So we have marvelous messages and nature neutralized. Jesus does big sign miracles publicly trying to affirm his claims to be the Son of God and the Messiah. Well, he gets so much publicity, the people in the home office in Jerusalem have to come up with a position on who Jesus is. They can't ignore him because too many people are wondering who he is. Maybe he's the Messiah. That's what he says he is. So we come to the, I call it the Pike's Peak of the ministry of Christ, where an O and P Opposition is offered to Jesus, and then Jesus parabolically talks about the opposition that will continue from that point on until he comes back the second time at the second advent. So what kind of uh, explanation did the Jewish leadership have for the miracles and the message of Jesus? They said, hey, he's not doing those miracles to validate his claims by the spirit of God's power. He's doing it by the spirit of Satan's power. That's what they're saying. And that's a capital crime under the Old Testament law. So at that point, everything changes. Up to now, let's get the word out as widely as possible to Israel. I'll preach the messages. I'll do big sign miracles to try to draw a crowd to confirm who I'm claiming to be. 
From now on, any miracles he does can and will be used against him because they're saying he's a technically possessed false prophet. So he changes his approach to ministry and he's focusing more on getting the disciples ready to carry on after what happens, after this happens. And our passage today is Thursday night, right before Friday morning crucifixion. So this is really where he gets down to the nitty-gritty, right? Boom, real places, real people, real events. Let's swipe the map clean because we've got so much data there and pick it up. What happens after Q? I mean, after P. What's the letter after P? Is it still Q? They change things, you know. They made Pluto was a planet, then it's not a planet, then maybe it's a planet. And my thought is, who's going to tell the Plutonians? You know, we're not sure what they are. Um, Q and R go together. Q is quizzical questions. After the word gets out, and the disciples know this, that Jesus is a dangerous capital felon because he's a satanically possessed false prophet. Not really, but that's what the leaders are saying. He takes them out of Jewish territory. This is not. This is about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee at the base of Mount uh, Hermon. And uh, we'll be there in, in May. And he says, what is the Gallup poll saying about me now that they're saying I'm satanically possessed? Who do men say that I am? And people are still saying nice things about Jesus, but nobody's saying he's the Savior. That's the problem. And then he says, what do you say? Who do you say I am now? Because you know what they're saying. You know what the leaders, they're supposed to be the experts. They've, they've been to seminary. And Peter, speaking for 11 of 12 of them, says what? We think you might be a prophet. No, he says, you are the Christ. That means the Savior, the issue and issue of eternal life for all who trust him for it. The Son of the living God. So he hits a home run there. And immediately after that, he takes Peter, James, and John on top of Mount Hermon, 9,200-foot slab of limestone. And then we have the transfiguration event. His reality is revealed. His, his glory is unveiled temporarily. And he interacts with uh, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and everything's right on track, even though the Jewish leaders are trying to make him out to be a bad guy. Okay, John 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, which is not a biblical, but a Jewish patriotic and military holiday, even though it's dangerous for him to be there, and stoning is stopped after he claims to be God. I and the Father are one. We're, I'm deity just like he is. Uh, few months later, tomb traumatized. Jesus resuscitates a guy who's been dead for four days, his good friend Lazarus, just outside of Jerusalem. You, understandable upset. Remember what happened at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, where he has to cleanse the temple. Three years later, the system's just as corrupt. He does the same thing he did at the beginning. The point is, don't trust big bureaucracies, including religious bureaucracies. They always go bad on you. V, vision of victory. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Jesus summarizes what's going to happen at the end of the age when he comes back and it's all going to work out fine. He's going to end human history on God's terms supernaturally, uh, literally, undeniably. It's happening and that's one of the things we need to know that keeps us going. And now we come to letter W. Letter W, as I say, is what's called the upper room discourse, washing and wisdom. He washes their feet, teaches them wisdom about how to fellowship with him when he's no longer physically with them anymore. That's the status we are in now. And I'll slow down and say this. Take a breath. I cannot overemphasize how important this passage is. And I think once you put this in context, and I've already alluded to it, you'll be able to see why I think that way. This is the evening before the crucifixion. The sun has gone down. It's 7 o'clock, I'm guessing. 7.30. Um, 
They have the Last Supper. They're interacting in that setting in an upper room uh, in Jerusalem. Let's go back to that. Let's go back to that. Yeah. This is a bird's eye view of Jerusalem. It's so cool because we can literally, you can really go to the site, do archaeology and figure out where all this happened. These are the walls around Jerusalem at the time. Uh, we don't know exactly the site of the upper room, but based on some good early historical evidence, it would have been in this part of Jerusalem. And this is where the washing and the wisdom takes place. And then after that, at, toward the end of the, the last, uh, the, uh, upper room discourse passage, Jesus and the guys walk through right in front of the temple, which represents his sacrifice, right in front of it. It's all lit up, beautiful, goes out the eastern gate, goes to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is arrested. So we're looking at, uh, the last thing Jesus wanted to impress on the minds of the 11 believing apostles just before he's arrested. He knows it. They're still clueless. Ken, they're still talking about which one of them is the greatest because they think he's going to overthrow the government and take over, and he's going to have to staff a cabinet and administration, and they're worried about which one of them is going to be Secretary of State. That's how clueless they are, okay? And yet you can't believe how kind and how much he loves them despite their unfortunate ignorance, which is so encouraging to me because I can be such a klutz. I mean, I can be such a fool. I can be so petty and selfish, and yet Jesus looks beyond all that at these guys, as we'll show you in a minute, and just says, man, I've really been looking forward to having this meal with you tonight. It's like, you, Peter, James, and John, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest? They totally miss your whole point up to this point. But listen, the crucifixion gets their attention, and the resurrection totally transforms them. Salvation is when we trust a crucified, risen Savior to save us. A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven or from Kansas City to heaven. But the risen one's the only one who's qualified to do so. Buddha can't do that for you. Muhammad can't do that for you, right? So good. You couldn't make it up. So we're uh, just a few hours before the arrest at Gethsemane Thursday night, uh, about 12 hours, a little bit more than 12 hours before the crucifixion starts. And he knows this, and they're clueless, and he's excited about teaching them these principles because he's looking beyond the trauma to the triumph, right? And it's in that setting that Jesus teaches these key concepts that they and uh, Ken Wanzer and that Ron Miller and Brad McCoy's believers need to know. He gives us first a pattern for fellowship, which is Christ-like servanthood. If you ain't a Christ-like servanthood, you haven't gotten with the program yet. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you don't look like it. Then he gives the key precept for fellowship and expands that. And that's one word, abide. We'll tell you what that means. Then he has the prayer for fellowship. So that's what the upper room discourse looks like. And I'm breaking it down as washing, because he washes their feet, and wisdom, because he's talking about how to fellowship with him and he's not physically with us anymore. But can I tell you a little secret, Murray? I'm going to spend more time on the washing than the wisdom this time. But let's survey the washing. We'll... That's why I had you turn to 13.31 about 17 minutes ago. Who's counting? Uh, <laughs> uh, it starts the second of three major portions. Let's look at the precept and the prayer, and we'll come back and focus on the washing. But yeah, look at 13.31. Precept for fellowship. Therefore, 13.31, when he had gone out, we're talking about Jesus, so Jesus has gone out. no. Therefore, when he had gone out of where? The upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus said, everybody's still in the room except one guy left. Who left? How are we going to find out? Anybody got a commentary? Anybody got Google? 
Listen, most Bible verses and questions are answered in the verse or two before or verse or two after, right? So let's go back. Uh, in fact, let's go back to um, verse 29. Uh, Jesus says uh, to him, what you do, do quickly. And uh, Judas gets up from the meal and leaves the room uh, for some of the apostles were assuming because Judas was the treasurer. Jesus was saying, "Go, what you do, do quickly. Go out there and buy something for the poor or make a contribution or an offering the temple. They just assumed he was sending him to do something like that. Uh, and so verse 30 says, so as soon as Judas received the morsel, the guest of honor at the feast, the Passover feast would get the morsel, the first bit of the meat that Jesus had given him. Judas went out, it was night, therefore when he had gone out. The reason I make a big deal about that is everything after verse 30 in the first of five chapters in the Upper Discourse is written to and about believers. This isn't how you get saved. It's how saved people can fellowship with Jesus. Okay, good works are not the root, they're the fruit, they're not the cause, they're the effect. So that's very important. You'd be surprised how many people jump in the middle of this and saying, if you're not doing this, this, and this, you probably ain't saved. Now, you're probably not in fellowship. You might not be saved, but if you've trusted Christ, you're saved. You're just not in good fellowship, right? So let's look at this. We're looking at the precept. The precept is to abide, and we're going to define that very specifically in a minute. But drop down to 1333. Judas has left the room. The 11 believing apostles and Jesus are still in the room. Jesus knows he's about to get arrested and then crucified tomorrow. And he says things like this. Little children, I'm with you just a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to you, or said to the Jews, I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come now. A new disciple, in a fresh way, in a fresh context, I give to you, that you love one another. And it's not easy to get along with Peter, James, and John. Just like it's not easy to get along with Ron, James, or Brad. You know, we can be prickly, right? Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men, that's anthropos, that means people, not just males, will know that you're my disciples, if you know what the super seven of the doctrinal absolute irreducible minimums are. You should believe that stuff, but you, you show people in the real world that you're really Christians when you love one another, when you kind of support one another. Uh, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus, Jesus answered and said, where I'm going, you cannot come, but you'll follow me later. And Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'd lay it down my life for you. Is that what he does? No. You know, braggadocio, macho, it only goes so far once the bullets start flying. Drop down to chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, don't panic. I told you I'm going, but you'll see me later. Don't panic. Keep on believing in God the Father. Keep on believing in me. And part of this is getting heaven ready for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If you weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That's pretty good stuff. And he says, and you guys know the way to where I'm going. And they don't even know where he's going. He's talking about heaven. But they're already believers. He's saying you're good. I'm not talking about whether you're saved. I'm talking about how you should function as a saved person when you can't follow me around physically 24-7 like they've done for the last three years. Um, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? <laughs> what? Uh, sometimes Jesus shoots over their head so that later when they think about it with some experience, they can figure it out and it's really theirs. That's a big part of education, folks. You expose yourself to stuff that's hard the first time that you'd rather not have to think about. And then eventually, it's like Mark Twain said, when I was 16, I was embarrassed by how ignorant my parents were. When I turned 21, I was amazed at how much the old people had learned in five years. You know, sometimes it takes a couple of years where you say, that's why he said that 18 times. 
Now we're in ICU. Now we understand. Jesus said very controversially, but he's not backing off of it. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, wow. Can you believe that's a controversial statement? It really is. It freaks people out. Uh, if you had known me to the depth and level like you could have after three years, he's not saying you don't know me, you're not saved. Knowing is a polymorphous word. I knew Debbie Walker uh, as a junior in high school. I really got to know her as a senior. And then a couple years later, we got married. And 45 years later, you know, she felt like she had to go away for a few weeks. We're separated right now, by the way. But <laughs> but her sister is recovering from a very painful knee operation. And she's going to be down there just like Jackie's here to serve her mother. Sometimes you've got to do stuff like that. Uh, uh, if you'd known me with the depth... Uh, and the intimacy like you should have, and you guys are kind of just kind of bumping around in spiritual middle school here, you would have known my father also, you would have rested in this, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal, you should have been more plugged in, but just so you'll know, I love you anyway, kind of thing. Drop down to verse 25, chapter 14. These things I've spoken to you while abiding, while me being with you, but I'm not going to be abiding with you anymore, I'm leaving. So I want you to abide with me spiritually, not physically, uh, go to, keep going, verse, through verse 29. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, who comes and empowers New Age, New, New Age, New uh, Testament believers, whoops, uh, will help you figure out the dots later. Then he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's not just psychological, feel better about yourself. Uh, don't let your heart be troubled, don't be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I'm going away, and I'll come to you. If you had loved me, like you should have, with the depth and intimacy like you should have. They do love him. He'll say later, you love me, but they should be much deeper than they are. You would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater, not better, greater than I. Psalm 110 talks about this event where the Son of God goes to heaven and is greeted and welcomed back to heaven. And David wrote that in 1000 B.C. and had no idea where that fit into the program. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus came down, gave up the independent use of his attributes, veiled his glory, took the servant's role, and he's saying, I'm going back. Psalm 110 is going to happen. I'm going to be re-welcomed to heaven. My work will be affirmed, and everything's going to go. He's not saying I'm inferior. He's just saying I've got a lesser role. That's what servanthood is, okay? All great Christian leaders must be servant leaders in the home, at work, and in the church. Anything less than that is a CEO business approach to, to things, and it may draw a crowd, but it's not the way to go. It's going to it's gonna ruin a lot of things if you do it the wrong way. Doing the right thing the wrong way is always a bad thing to do. Keep reading. Now, verse 29, I've told you before all this starts happening, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, so when it happens, you may believe, you may understand and be affirmed in your faith that I've got this under control, I know what I'm doing. You may have a deeper level of faith, a more comprehensive level of faith, right? Okay, drop down to chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. He says to them, now who's in the room? Jesus would be a good answer. And by the way, in Sunday school, you know, they ask him, no matter, they can be in Exodus. If, a, they, if the teachers stop in junior church, you look at four-year-olds and say, uh, who did this? Anywhere in the Bible. Uh, 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 who said that? They all say Jesus because they know they won't get in trouble for saying Jesus. You know, it's, that's always a good answer. But if I say, look at 15.3, uh, who's in the room? Jesus and who else? The 11 apostles. Where's Judas? He left at 13.31. He's, 
And he's not doing nice things. He's signing the contract to turn Jesus over, okay? He says, no, don't, don't misunderstand me here. You guys are already clean. And that's, that's plural. Uh, Jackie hadn't heard this. In Oklahoma, we've got y'all, the singular, and all y'all is plural. In English, Y-O-U can be singular or plural. In New Testament Greek, they spell singular and plural differently. So you got y'all, but here, he says, all y'all are already clean. You, you guys are good. You're going to heaven. But here's what, what I want you to do after I leave. Abide in me. You've already believed. I want you to abide in me. Not the same thing. And I'll abide in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's one of those Bible mistakes. You can do a lot of things while not abiding in Christ. You can preach sermons. You can serve as a pastor. You can be on the board as an elder. You can lead worship. You can save somebody who's drowning. You can serve... Uh, uh, honorably in the U.S. military. You can, do, you can do all kinds of things. You can do all the things that real uh, vital Christians do, but you can do nothing that's spiritually vital unless you're abiding in Christ. Okay, Jesus warns about bad good works and good good works. Uh, don't do anything just because you want to impress people. You do the good things you do as a Christian because you're abiding in Christ. Now, what does abiding in Christ mean? This is a practical a definition based on just a couple of decades of theological work. And this is what abiding in Christ is. If saving faith is active, receptive trust, recognizing and responding from the heart to the Christ who can save us. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You died for my sins. You can get me to heaven. I want you to. That's saving faith. Abiding in Christ is a relational add-on to that. Abiding in Christ is Murray Powers or Sue Smith Rascott or Billy Graham or Danny Pollock, believers, recognizing and responding from the heart in loving service to the person of Jesus who saved you. Okay, uh, It's not just obeying rules. Are there rules in the New Testament? Say yes. Are we supposed to obey those rules by rote, with a grim resignation? Well, First Peter says, I'm supposed to respect you as a fellow of the grace of life, woman, but I don't like it. Is that the way to be a great Christian husband? I'm going to use a bad word. Heck no. That's a terrible way to be a Christian husband. That's not abiding in Christ. The Pharisees did all the good things, all the rules, with no relationship. This is not about rules. The Christian life is not about rules. It's about relationship. Well, you just said it's not about rules. It's not about rules, but it leads to us doing the right thing the right way, obeying the rules and being happy about it, right? Embracing servanthood gladly, willingly, not grudgingly. Abiding in Christ is believers, Dustin Wiley, recognizing and responding from the heart to Jesus. I'm doing this for you. Uh, I'm loyal to a fault. I'm kind of detail-oriented as a husband, father, grandfather, and even as a pastor. I do a lot of little things that would not be on anybody's job description, and sometimes I tend to be frustrated, and when I do, I just say, Jesus, this is for you. As I do something, nobody, my, my, nobody's going to notice if I do it. It doesn't even really matter. But there's a thing called sin of omission. You know what sin of omission is, uh, Tim? If you know to do something right and you just don't do it, James says that's sin too, right? So one of the problems of spiritual growth is you realize a lot more things that need to be done that nobody else is doing, so you just do it. But you do it for the right reasons. Abiding in Christ is them and us, the guys who are used to walking around physically with Jesus all day long, now doing the stuff they do after he's gone physically, 
by recognizing, responding to who he is. He's the one who saved me. He's the one who died for me. So me, for me to do X, Y, and Z for him or for somebody else in his name is no big deal. You actually do this thing and never be impressed with yourself because you're not looking at how many wonderful things you're doing for people. You're doing it for him. And how can you compare any sacrifice or any little inconvenience that you do for the Lord compared to what he did for you? You can't. You can't. So I see people burn out of ministry and wondering, what's your motivation? I mean, if you're doing it for him, you might burn out because they strap you to a stake and burn you in North Korea. But for us to be psychologically burned out, uh, and I, you know, I have, maybe I don't have that tendency, but I don't, I don't get that. I, th- I think that may be a sign you're not abiding in Christ. You're doing the good things for the wrong reasons, just out of a grim resignation because you're you've got a toughness groove in your brain. You need more than that, really, to to make it really work. Uh, go down to chapter 15, verse 11. We can do nothing spiritually vital unless we're abiding in Him. We can do all the same things, but it's just kind of out of the flesh or out of human virtue. These things I've spoken to you so that your joy, happiness is pleasant, feelings based on pleasant happenings, joy is more profound than that. It's just kind of the eye of the hurricane stability, no matter what your circumstances are, that your joy may be full. If you're abiding in Christ, you can have joy in any circumstance. If you don't, you've got no, you got no shot. Dr. Phil can give you some psychological ideas, and some of them actually work temporarily, but it's not the real deal. Go to verse 18. Now watch this. When you're abiding in Christ and doing the right things, you're going to get a lot of opposition, a lot of flack. If the world hates you, and that's first-class condition in the Greek, if and this is going to happen, the world's going to hate you. Nobody hated me before it hated you. Now take it kind of as a compliment, right? Um, let's see, where am I there? Verse 19. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world's going to hate you. So the more that you actually do the right stuff, people are going to notice and probably get offended in some cases. Chapter 16, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling when a lot of bad things happen after I leave, because they will happen. We're not immune from all these bad things happening to you. And if you live as long as I do, uh, Caitlin, uh, you might lose your hair, hopefully not as bad as I did, and you might lose your good looks and your charisma. You know, these things kind of uh, come and go, you know, drop down to verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. You're going to have to be on the other side of the resurrection to handle some of this stuff, I want to tell you. Where do we get that stuff, Dr. Deeg? We get it from the New Testament, right? Because all that's written after the, after the resurrection, right? It all fits together. Isn't that great? Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. Now, he just said, you didn't love me as deeply as you should have, but they do love him. You didn't trust me as long as you, deep as you should have, but they had trust in him, Okay? They haven't reached total maturity here yet, you know, but they, most of the apostles get there, don't they? For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I've come forth from the Father, I've come forth from the Father and have come into the world, I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And that's a good thing for him and for us too when you really think about it, right? Drop down to verse um, 17, chapter 17, verses 5 and following. Uh, Homer read part of this the other week as the call of worship, and he said this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. A lot of people call chapter 17 the prayer for fellowship, his high priestly prayer. This is actually the Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer is the disciple model prayer Jesus told us. This is actually the Lord praying. And Mike, he prays for you in this passage. I'm going to show you in this prayer, he prays for you personally. But don't get too excited, because even though you're special and important, everybody else in the room is too. So just so you'll know. Look at verse 5. Now, Father, Jesus, Jesus praying, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's thinking about the aftermath of the death, resurrection, ascension. 
I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. He's, talk, he's talking about the 11 apostles there. Out of the world. They're not in the world. They're believers. They're good to go. Uh, they were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Really? He's being awfully generous in that description, isn't he? He's kind of like a teacher who's trying to find out what you did do right. A coach trying to find something you did do right here. He's being so gracious. That is so encouraging to me that he would describe them. Because there's a lot of ways you could say, they didn't, they blew it, man. They're still thinking they're going to be, they're arguing about who's Secretary of State here. You know, because they really think Jesus is taking over the government. They just haven't connected the dots. But, he, you know, he, he uh, is so gracious. Verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. They received them and truly understood I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. They're believers. This is not the issue in the upper room discourse. Make sure that they can check and see if they're believers or not. Right? It's a rational act, not a meritorious work. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I love that. Drop down to verse 13. Uh, but now I come to you. I'm about to come to you, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, and these things I speak in the world so that these guys who are hearing this prayer, the apostles, may have joy in its fullness, may really abide in me despite all the flack they're going to face. I've given them your word. Boy, that's a good thing to give believers, isn't it? And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I don't ask you to make them bulletproof but to keep them from the evil one being influenced or to water down the message. They're not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If you want to know what Pastor Brad's theme verse is when he's no longer here, go to 1717. Easy to remember. Trying to teach you guys to be sanctified in the truth based not on what Oprah said last week, but on the word of God. The word is truth. You sent me into the world. I've also sent them in the world for they sex. I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So up to now, he's talking about the apostles, 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 apostles. Verse 20, he starts talking about Sonia or Mike. Jesus, the last thing before he gets arrested, is praying for us. I do not ask on behalf of these 11 alone, who are the you know foundation of the church, Jesus being the cornerstone. Guess what, folks? I'm going to slow down. I'm going to turn my mind from maximum speed to a little bit slower. I'm going to make an exact decision. We're not washing feet this week. You're going to have to come back next week to watch that because I thought this would take 15 or 17 minutes and actually practice it and we're at 38 and that dog ain't going to hunt, as they say. Or the uh, the hay is in the barn, as Bill Bryant used to say. So we're going to slow down. We're going to just finish this survey. And next week, if you dare, come back and we'll go to the uh, the pattern for fellowship washing feet. I feel better. Um Look at verse 20. I love this passage so much. I love you guys. I want to get this uh, in front of you. I want this to be something you remember. And I just cramped cramp too much in the back of the truck. What can I say? But that's okay. I'd rather do that than the other way around. That's just me. Look at verse 20. Here's where he's, the Lord is praying for Mike. He's praying for Sonia. If you're a believer, he's praying for you in this prayer. Uh, Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of just these 11, even though they're really significant. These are the guys I've been mainly talking to as representatives, but they're also with special functions. But for those also who will believe in me through their word, will believe, if you're a believer, you believe through the apostolic word, written word, and also the testimony that founded the church in the first century. Okay, Meg, he's talking about you there. You're somebody who's, who's believed in Jesus 
through the word of the apostles, okay? We don't have a lot of faith in the apostles. Faith is, is only as good as the object, right? If Jack Smith, who's a very good uh, repeller, tries to repel down the Mount Scott, I, my wife told me they close Mount Scott or just the road. So you can't like close a mountain, can you? I mean, just everybody off, all your ants, all your animals off. It's closed, you know. So they closed Mount Scott, yeah. But uh, Jack, who is really good about that, he, about 25 years ago, he tried to get me to go camping with him or repelling. I said, look, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. Okay, no, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hate heights, and the older I've gotten, the worse I am. Like this is this is like terrifying to me. Just so you'll know, I've, you know. Uh, but if you try to repel off uh, a cliff and, and depend on kite string to hold you up, you may sincerely believe that's going to work. But faith is not a power in itself. Faith just accesses an object. Okay, uh, you may be a very sincere Buddhist, a very sincere Mormon, or whatever. God bless you. But salvation is only for those who trust Jesus Christ for it. And he's praying for all those who would who would come to believe through the apostolic New Testament word, and that includes you if you're a believer. Uh, I'm not pray, praying just for the apostles. I'm praying for all those who will believe in me. See, he's the object of the faith, right? Through their word. He re- realizes the apostles are going to have a foundational dynamic, and they write, and you know, let's add Paul in there too, you know, as an apostle who's not there presently. But yeah, we've got the New Testament apostolic word. That's where you're going to find it. You're not going to get it anywhere but that, right? Uh, that they may, and, and, and that they, they would come to believe, and then he prays. And listen, I believe that all of Jesus' prayers get answered, okay? So I got a different take on this than probably you heard before, verse 21. He's praying that all who believe through the apostolic word, and that includes you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of color, country, denomination, generation, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay, That looks like this. Now, some Christians don't understand this, and some Christians almost resist it, but Jesus has a capital C church worldwide of all believers in him from colors, countries, cultures, doesn't matter, denominations, generations, and that's the way his church looks. And we all do have a unity in Christ. We may or may not express it. We may not understand it. Uh, I think there's a lot of very sincere folks that are run, raised Baptist or raised some denomination, and they think you know they're special. Maybe they are. You know, they've got a special set of, of fine-pointed convictions, and they may even doubt uh, the salvation of other people who you know, go to different denominations. It's it's not what denomination you've got. It's who your Savior is. Now, you can go to church and be a church member and never really trust Christ alone for salvation. You may think you're going to church is what saves you. That's a big bugaboo. That can happen. But uh, God looks at his church, and it is unified. Okay. Now, we looked at this last week because TBF is like a microcosm of that because we're not a denominational church. We're an undenominational church, as Gene says. I prefer um, a multi-denominational church. But if that's the gospel, Christ died for our sins and rose again, we trust, dare to trust him for salvation? Yeah, that's how you receive it. Assembly of God people who believe that, and white people, and black people, and rich people, and poor people, and Methodist people, and Southern Baptists, and Northern Baptists, and Nazarene. This is not all the denominations, according to my textbook where I teach at Cameron. They say there's 36,000 of them. Obviously, we couldn't put all 36,000 on the chart, but we would, in heaven we will. Uh, Lutheran, Tango Bible Fellowship, that's just true. Now you say, well, obviously that's true. So why is he praying about it? Because under the Old Testament, you had Israel and everybody else. 
Now, Israel was supposed to be a light to attract the world to hear about the Messiah. And, you know, you have people who did that. Uriah the Hittite, Naaman. You had, how about Ruth? Where's Ruth from? Was she born in Bethlehem? Heck no, she was born among the Moabites. And you have statements in the Old Testament law that Moabites aren't allowed in the congregation of Israel. And you're going, that's horrible. They're making ethnic... No, they're not. That's not an ethnic term there. That's a theological term. You can't be worshiping Molech and offering up children to the fire and be a Moabite in your theology and enter the uh, the camp in Israel. You've got to embrace Yahweh, the God who's going to send the Savior. You've got to put Molech away and stop with all that paganism. So that's a theological term, not an ethnic term. So when you re- do you realize that Ruth is in the line of the Messiah? But you got verses that Moabites aren't allowed as long as they embrace Moabite theology. If you can call them Moabites in their theology, that's where their faith is. We don't want them messing up and, you know, contaminating Israel. Now, they end up becoming contaminated as we're learning on Wednesday nights. But that was the idea. It was not ethnic cleansing. That was theological purity focusing on the true God. It's always good to believe in the true God that's going to send Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is saying, hey, in the Old Testament, we had some dichotomy there. But I want all colors, countries, and cultures that believe in me to be inherently uh, united. And to the extent that we actually function like that's true, it's even better. Because, you know, listen, our culture's way, our culture's way too beyond the point morally. And they have no conception of the fact, they look at the phone book, of, they don't look at phone books anymore, but they look at all the 27, whatever it is, 95 different churches in Stephen County, and they think there's 95 different versions of Christianity. Ultimately, historically, we're saying Jesus is the Savior, we're the sinners, we can't save ourselves, he's the Savior, we're the saviors. If you'll trust in him alone, dare to trust in him alone and receive him as Savior, he'll give you eternal life and a whole capacity now to abide in him and serve him in him and serve him. I told you brain to slow down a little bit. Um, that's my problem, my brain just goes too fast. But I think this prayer was answered, okay? I don't pray just for the apostles. I pray for all the believers that will come after this, and I pray they'll all be one. And that happened. We don't have the Old Testament uh, di- divisions anymore. We're in the New Testament, New Covenant. Isn't that wonderful, as Martha would say? Yeah. Now, next week, Lord willing, Pastor Brad will speak a little more slowly, and we'll look at Jesus on servanthood as we look at that very first part of the sermon, uh, of the uh, upper discourse. I was going to say Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, you know, we had pattern, precept, and prayer. We just summarized the precept and the prayer. Now, next week, we're going to come back and look at the pattern. So, hey, read ahead on that if you want to. And even if you don't, that's just a command. Read ahead on that, okay? Yeah, not really. Uh, but I do want you to abide in Christ. This is the engine that separates the men from the boys. This is the way spirituality really works. This means you'll do a lot of things nobody notices, and you can't get your feeling hurt, you know? You're not doing it to impress people. You're not doing it for people per se. You're doing everything you do for Jesus. Abiding in Christ. And it's not just Zach at Sundays and Wednesdays. It's at Marlowe High School. It's being a good son to, to your, your dad, Tim. It's, it applies to everything. The Lordship of Christ applies to every area of life, not just to religious stuff, right? So, Zach, this applies to you. Sonia, this applies to you. What's abiding in Christ? It's not just obeying the rules. It's recognizing and responding from the heart to Jesus, to your ruler, who's your Savior and your Lord and your best friend, and you're doing this for him. Lord, I'm doing this for you. 
holding the dirty diapers or away from them. They're really bad, you know. It's so funny. Uh, I got some good training doing some of that around here, but now that I've got uh, four grand, seven grandkids, if I say four, I'm really in trouble. But uh, for a long time, we had a bunch of them in diapers because we had two sets of twins. And Eloise, one of the littlest ones, uh, when she's at our house, when Grandma, she changes the diapers. I don't change the diapers. You know, it's, it's just a limit to how far I can go to serve. You understand that? <laughs> Plus, I make a mess, and it takes me 30 minutes. And she can do it in 15 seconds and just hand me the diaper wrapped up. It's all taped and stuff. Well, Eloise, for some reason, I took her with me when she was teensy-weensy. And now, to this day, and she's four now, all the dirty diapers, she has to hold the dirty diaper wrapped up and throw it into the, to the garbage can, you know. And some of the times, you know, you're watching like a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game or a golf tournament or a rerun of the Lone Ranger or something you don't want to interrupt, and your wife hands you this dirty diaper, and it's like, don't throw it in the garbage in the house. Throw it in the garbage outside, and it's raining or it's snowing or there's a hurricane or something outside. And everybody looks up at you like, let's go, Pops. So, you know, that's one of those times you go, Lord, I'm doing this for you, you know. <laughs> and I'm using that as a funny one because that's easy, you know. But I tell you what. This will totally revolutionize your your spiritual life. If nobody's told you this, Jesus is saying, don't just do it. Do it for me. Don't make it about rules. Make it about your relationship with me. And serve others because you're looking at my servanthood and you're doing it for me and with me. And I'll make sure you do everything you need to do. And the cool thing is you don't have to serve everybody all the time. Does that mean there's no limits? Yeah. There are righteous boundaries. Some people will start abusing you. I've got... Uh, I think I've got the reputation at Cameron for being the most lenient speech grader among the faculty, but I'm the hardest outline grader it's because I try to find something to like even in the worst possible speeches. And we have, like, the first speech is five minutes. We've had some really short five-minute speeches, Tim. We've had, like, 37 seconds. It's a short five-minute speech. <laughs> now, I can't give you an A on that, but you've got, you've got some potential. Let's talk about what potential is. So... Uh, you know, I look at the way Jesus talks about these guys in this passage, and he's like me grading speeches sometimes too leniently. But I mean, yeah, there are limits. Some people will abuse uh, your uh, conception of, of, uh, of servanthood, and you've got to think in strategic circles. Sometimes we're happier to do something for the Qantas Club than we are for our wife or our spouse. you got to have priorities there. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to mess this up. But I mean, this is, this is such an amazing concept. We trust in Him for salvation and now we trust in Him to allow us to serve Him and other people. And you do that and it, it works like a charm. Now, you know, after 37 years of ministry, I'm not rich or famous, so you may not want to go by what I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, I gotta believe I'm right where God basically wants me to be. And I'm, I'm happy. And I've got some joy too. So we'll dismiss with that. I'll, I'll we'll have a word of prayer, but uh, please read ahead. And then remember, talking about serving others, I almost forgot my most important thing. I'm still going to run long. Well, uh, if you're looking for ways to serve around here, look on the back of the bulletin. I mean, uh, youth minister music, James may not know about your talent or your willingness to even serve on the worship team. And he doesn't read minds as well as he used to. He's got a master's degree now, and he's kind of burned a lot of brain cells getting that. So uh, it'll do it to you. Uh, so wouldn't hurt to talk to James about music ministry. CE, that stands for Christian Education. That's Sunday morning, Super Sunday School, second hour, junior church, Wednesday night, uh, the wards and the kids clubs. Uh, we need some helps in those areas all the time, support stuff, talk to her. Especially, uh, eventually the wards may have to move so that, so Eric doesn't have to drive, you know, 
a long way. So we're, we're praying that uh, that will be prolonged as long as possible. It'll be the longest death march in history here. But we know your uh, time is, is limited here at, at some levels. So that's important. Uh, keyboards, I bet Jens and Blanche, maybe we've got somebody who was just a piano virtuoso in high school and needs to kind of work on her talents and kind of get back in there or something. I told my wife she's got to take piano lessons if somebody doesn't volunteer for that soon. But uh, she's resisting that. Meals on Wheels, uh, it's great to receive that, but it's more blessed to give than receive. You know, Debbie kind of organizes that, Corbin, and, and maybe you can do some of that. Nursery coordinator, newsletter, and if you're clueless about what to do, ask one of the elders. We'll find something for you to do, to serve around here. Um, but apply that close to home. Sometimes it's easier in theory to think about that than actually do it. One way you can serve if you don't have a pressing engagement and have gone so long, many of you probably need to leave now, but uh, at least go to the restaurant or whatever. But uh, uh, one way we can serve one another is to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, share some prayer requests, pray for them on the spot, and then enjoy our afternoon. So if you can possibly stay with us and pray with us, uh, that'd be good too. Okay, so let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, mercy, and goodness and your love for us and your desire for us to score some points for your team. Why you want me to be a draft pick on your team, I have no idea. But you, you've drafted all of us, not just to receive, but to give, but the right way. And help us, Lord, just re-sanctify ourselves, rededicate ourselves to do the things, everything we do, as we're responding relationally, personally, to the Jesus who saved us. And that'll free us up from crummy attitudes, inconsistency, resentments, all these kind of things that slow us down and clog up our spiritual arteries, so to speak. And I pray you would take this truth and press it deep in all of our hearts to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.